I don't do this very often, but the sermon that I'm preaching this morning is not the sermon I planned to preach today. Um, but when I told Sarah what I was going to do instead, she was excited about it. So I hope that means that y'all will be excited about it too. And we'll return to the Gospel of John next week, Lord willing. But for today, we're going to listen to John from a little bit different angle. So John, the Apostle John, wrote five books in the New Testament. The Gospel of John, of course. Uh, the book of Revelation, also a big, significant, important book. He also wrote three letters that we call 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. And what I want to do this morning is to highlight for you from the letter we call 1st John four truths that John wants us to know and be encouraged and comforted uh, and even warned by. So we're going to look at 1 John together, and we're not going to be in just one passage. We're going to kind of jump around, but 1 John's not very long, so you shouldn't have much trouble uh, keeping up with where we're going. And uh, so what John, the four things that John emphasizes in this letter that I want to draw your attention to this morning are, first of all, that John wants us to know the real Jesus. Not everybody who uses the name Jesus is talking about the Jesus of the Bible. And so John helps us to discern the difference between the real Jesus and the fake Jesus that some preachers proclaim. He also wants us to know that we cannot and should not embrace both sin and Christ. So if you embrace Jesus, if you embrace Christ, you can't at the same time embrace sin. And we'll talk about what that means in a little bit. And then John also wants us to be assured of our salvation, right? That's something that we all want, right? We want to know. I want to know that I'm saved. How do I know that I'm saved? What, what can I look for? What ought to be present in my life? John wants us to know that too. He wants us to experience that assurance of salvation and he helps us to know how. And then fourth and finally, John emphasizes the importance of love in the Christian life. Love for God and love for one another. And this is what John is really the best known for and what he seems to talk about the most. And so that's where we'll land uh, at the end of this sermon. So, But we want to start with John emphasizing the importance of knowing the real Jesus. Now all throughout the history of the church, there have been different ways that people have distorted the truth about Christ. But what was happening in John's day was that there were people who were saying that Jesus did not really become man. He did not really take on flesh and blood like one of us. He was, they didn't, weren't necessarily denying that he was the Son of God. Right? They weren't necessarily denying that he was divine. But they were denying that he was really and truly human. Um, why would they do that, you might wonder? Why, why, why would they do that? Well, probably they were thinking, and you know, there was a, a sort of a different worldview going on back then than what we have. But they were probably thinking matter, bodies, physical things, those are not, they're not spiritual. They're not good. They're all tainted by sin and evil. And so how could God... Take on flesh and blood. That seems like going the wrong way, right? We should want to get rid of it, 
But here he is taking it on. Why would he do that? Why would he want to take on flesh and blood? If he was really God, he wouldn't sully himself with a physical body. That's probably what they were thinking. But John knew the truth and wanted us to know the truth. And so he says from the very beginning of the book in 1 John, verse 1, he says... That which was from the beginning. Remember John starts his gospel. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He's talking about Jesus, the eternal Son of God. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon, and have touched with our hands concerning the Word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and testified to it, and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father, and was made manifest to us. Now, why would John emphasize that he not only heard Jesus, and saw Jesus, but also touched Jesus? He emphasizes that, again, because there are preachers in John's day who are saying, I know Jesus looked human, but he wasn't really human. He may have been divine, but he wasn't man. In chapter 4, John uh, explains this more specifically when he says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. Is that still a vital warning today? You better believe it. The false prophecies change some over time. The message of the false prophets change over time. But the reality is that not everyone who's preaching, and not even everyone who's preaching in the name of Jesus, is preaching the truth. Some of them are using the name of Jesus for fame, or profit, or whatever other motive, but they're not preaching the real Jesus. They're preaching a false Jesus. And John warns us about the way this was happening in his day in verse 2. So he says, okay, you got to know the difference between false prophets, right, and those who are speaking the truth. So how do we know? He says, by this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. So he says, the way you know that someone is speaking by the Holy Spirit, they're speaking the truth, is if they proclaim and acknowledge that Jesus came in the flesh. Now, that's not the only criteria for knowing that someone's talking about the real Jesus. That's just the problem that John was warning about in his day. Again, that there were some who were denying that Jesus came in the flesh. And so John's saying, if someone comes to you, and they're talking about Jesus, and they're preaching in Jesus' name, and you say, are you talking about the Jesus who was born of the Virgin Mary and took on flesh and blood and became like one of us so he could die in our place. And they said, well, no, no, that's not what I'm talking about. Well, then you can just get up and walk out because that's not the real Jesus they're preaching about. And you don't need to listen to that because they're not telling you the truth. Now, again, that's not the only way people distort who Jesus is. These people were denying that Jesus was really man. But there are also times when people deny that Jesus is really God. 
And John would warn us against the same error. Again, he begins his gospel by telling us that the Word who took on flesh, who we know as Jesus, was in the beginning with God. And that through him, God created all things. So if the person you're listening to is talking about Jesus and how he was a man and took on flesh and blood and all that, and you say, okay, but are you talking about the eternal God who took on flesh? And they say, well, no, I mean, you know, he's just a man like us, just a really good one. All right, well, again, we're not talking about the same Jesus. All right. That's really important. That's uh, one of the first things John tackles in this book. He wants us to make sure that when people are talking about Jesus, and we're listening to them, that they're talking about the real Jesus. Not a distortion of Jesus, not a fake Jesus, not their version of Jesus, the real Jesus. And here's why this matters. Because if Jesus is not both truly man and truly God, there is no salvation through that Jesus. If Jesus was not truly man, as some of the people in John's day were claiming, They were denying that he was really man. If he was not really man, could he die? How how, how does somebody die? Can God die? Humans can die, right? People with flesh and blood can die. Jesus had to take on flesh and blood in order to die on the cross. If he was just a spirit, right? Even a divine spirit only with no real body, then he wasn't really nailed to the cross. He didn't really take our place. He didn't really die. And he didn't really rise, which means we don't really have any Savior or salvation. In the same way, if Jesus was just a man, but not really God, he could die. God could have even raised him from the dead. But what good would that do you or me? If I died... And God resurrected me. Is that going to help you? I can't die for you. I can't pay for your sin. Only God can do that. Only God can atone for the sins of the whole world. Jesus has to be both fully God and fully man in order for us to have any salvation at all. So John's not just being nitpicky or saying, you know, well, that set of preachers, we don't like them because they're not part of our group, so don't listen to them. He's warning them against these false teachers. Because a false teacher who teaches you about a false Jesus promises a false salvation. That doesn't really save. He warns them about that because he loves them. He wants them to know the truth because as Jesus said, it's only the truth that can set you free. The next thing John emphasizes is that we cannot embrace sin and Christ at the same time. Now, this is one of the places where John gets really misunderstood. Because some people think that John teaches uh, that Christians can or even must experience sinless perfection. Right? And we'll see in just a moment in chapter 3 where people get that from. John says some things that on the surface kind of sound like that. It kind of sounds like John says, look, if you're a Christian, you're not going to sin anymore. And if you think that's what John is saying, uh, 
you're going to have a lot of trouble, right? Because if you know yourself at all, you know that that's not true of you. We all are still sinning. And so then you start to wonder, well, is there something wrong with me? Am I not really a Christian? Because I'm still struggling with sin. But if we understand what John is saying from beginning to end in this letter, it is crystal clear that he's not teaching sinless perfection. He's not saying that Christians stop sinning when they come to know Christ. But he is saying that our relationship to sin changes once we have a relationship with Christ. That he is saying. So here's what he says first, in, in, or what I want to point out to you first in John chapter 1, verse 8. This was apparently a part of the false teaching that these churches were hearing as well. When he says in verse 8, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. John not only is not saying that Christians should be sinless, he's saying if you think you're sinless, you don't even know yourself. You are deceiving yourself if you think you have no sin. He says the same thing in verse 10. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. God says we've sinned. God says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. If we claim we haven't sinned, we're saying God is lying. And we know ourselves better than God does. Evidently there were some people in that day who were claiming that they had not sinned and that they did not have sin. John says... Those people don't know what they're talking about. And they disagree with God. Whose side would you like to be on? Right? The answer to that ought to be really clear. If we do have sin, then what should we do with it? John tells us in verse 9. If we confess our sins, right, rather than denying that we have them, if we acknowledge them, right, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. In other words, holiness in the Christian life, living a godly life, does not entail pretending or convincing yourself that you no longer struggle with sin. That you no longer commit sin. That you are so faithful and committed to Christ that sin is a part of your past, maybe, but definitely not a part of your present. That is not Christian holiness. That's a a deception. What Christian holiness looks like is not pretending you don't have sin, but going to God with your sin, knowing that He alone can forgive your sin. That's what Christian holiness looks like. And he says a little bit more about this at the beginning of chapter 2. In verse 1 and 2, he says, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And so he's not saying, hey, everybody sins, so just get on with it. Be okay with it. He's not saying that either. He doesn't want us to sin. He's trying to help us not sin. We are not going to be sinless, but he does want us to sin less, right? I write these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation 
Or one translation says, the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. In other words, if you have sin, and you will, here's what you do with it. You bring it to Jesus. You confess it to Him. You remember that He's the one who made atonement for our sin when He died on the cross. He atoned for the sins of the world. Anybody who comes to Him by faith and repenting, turning from their sin, receives that forgiveness. And He says that Jesus is our advocate with the Father. He does not uh, condemn us. He doesn't prosecute against us. He advocates for us. Not because, again, not because Jesus is claiming that we're sinless. He's not saying, oh, this is all a big misunderstanding. They didn't mean it. It was a mistake. They didn't actually do it. Whatever. No. How does he advocate for us? That one's mine. I I covered for that one. I paid for that one. Charge that one to my account. Let this one go. Right? Let this man, this woman go free. Because I paid for their sin. That's how Jesus advocates for us. And this is what he offers right, to anyone who comes to him. Anyone who trusts in him. It doesn't matter who you are, where you came from, what your background is. If you will turn from sin to Jesus, he will forgive you. He will be for you. He will love you. That's why he laid down his life. Now, John does say, as I mentioned earlier, in chapter 3, some things that sound like he expects us, once we know Christ, not to sin anymore. So it's important that we look at those verses and, and understand what he does mean and what he does not mean. And we have to remember, when we get to, this is chapter 3, beginning in verse 4. We have to remember, when we get here, John has not forgotten what he wrote in chapter 1 and chapter 2. Sometimes, the way we read the Bible, we kind of like, we could plop down into 1 John chapter 3. And start reading and think, oh no, this does not sound good. I don't think this is about me. Maybe I'm in trouble. But if we remember what he said in chapter 1 and in chapter 2, that's going to guard us from misunderstanding what he says in chapter 3. Because we know John's not going to contradict himself. So here's what he says, verse 4. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared, Jesus appeared, in order to take away sins. And in him, there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. Ooh, really? No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Hmm. What do we do with that? Right? If, that was, if, you were, if you were using some kind of daily devotional right, that just has like one verse on the page and then maybe a little few thoughts about it, and you're, you open the, your little devotional and the, the verse for the day is 1 John 3, 6, No one who abides in Him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen Him or know him, known Him. You might think, man, I've only been up for 30 minutes, but I know that's already not true of me today. You know, I've already barked at the coffee maker and, you know... It's not good. What does he mean? He clearly does not and cannot mean if you know Jesus, if you abide in Jesus, you will never ever sin again. 
We know He can't mean that because He just told us if we think we don't have any sin, we're self-deceived. So what does He mean? What He means is, once you have come to know Christ, your position, your relationship towards sin has changed. When He says, if you abide in Him, if you know Him, you don't keep on sinning. He doesn't mean you never ever sin again. He means you don't keep living in the same pattern and life of sin that you had before you met Him. As if nothing had changed. Coming to know Jesus is not just saying, okay, yeah, uh, Jesus is God and I don't want to go to hell. And so Jesus, please save me. Check that off the list. All right, I just go back to my life the way that it was. John says, if that's you, you don't know him. If, if, if knowing Jesus has not changed anything about your posture, your attitude towards sin, then you don't really know Jesus. Because Jesus came to take away sin. In Jesus is no sin. And so those who come to Jesus and are saved by Jesus, they come because they know they have sin. They know they need their sin taken away. And they want to live for Jesus and no longer live for sin and for themselves. And so if that's not you, John is saying, then you need to look at Jesus again. You, 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 need, to, you need to turn to Jesus. You need to trust In Jesus, you need to recognize that embracing Christ means turning away from sin. And it doesn't mean you won't ever fall into it again. It certainly won't mean you never tempt it again. But it does mean that now your desire is to live for Christ. Your desire is to avoid sin. Your desire is to honor Jesus. A real change has taken place. That's what John is saying. So don't let John's teaching discourage you by taking it in a way that he doesn't mean. Ask yourself this question. Do I feel differently about sin now than I did either before I met Christ or if you can't remember that far back or when that was, you know, Is my posture towards sin now different than it was the last time I remember really being in rebellion against God or just ignoring God or whatever? Has it changed in the last few years? Has has there been a change in my life where I know I don't want to live that way? I want to follow Jesus. That's really all John is talking about. What is your attitude toward sin? And what is your attitude toward Christ? Has it changed? If it's changed, that's evidence that you do know him. And that's what John draws our attention to next, or what I want to draw your attention to next from John, is the assurance of salvation. How do we know that we know? How do we know that we're saved? And how do we know that when we know that we're saved, that we are right? How do we know we're not deceived on that point? How do we know that we really know God? John wants us to be really clear on that. He wants to help us to have that assurance. So how does he do that? In 1 John chapter 2, beginning in verse 3, he says, By this we know that we have come to know Him, 
If we keep His commandments, whoever says, I know Him, but does not keep His commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps His word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in Him. Whoever says He abides in Him ought to walk in the same way in which He walked. Now, here again, we have to be careful. We have to keep in mind all that John is saying. Because you can read these verses and think, okay, John says, I will know that I know Jesus if I keep Jesus' commandments. And there are some of us, right, who will say, Immediately you start saying, well, I don't all the time. I know I don't perfectly. I know there are definitely some areas in my life where I'm, I'm not doing that. Right? And we immediately get discouraged. Right? But John's not saying, you know you've come to know him if you always keep all of his commandments all the time perfectly. It's just not true of anybody. It wasn't even true of the apostles. Right? Paul had to rebuke Peter, because he was out of step with the truth of the gospel in Galatians chapter 2. So none of us are going to be sinless. That's not what he's talking about. But is the aim of your life to follow Jesus, to imitate him, to do the kinds of things that he said? That's what John's talking about. He's not warning about people who claim to know Jesus, but stumble and get tripped up and, and, and sin and fall short. He's not warning against that. He's warning against the kind of people, and they're out there, and you probably know some of them, right? Some of them are very public people, right? They say, they use the name Jesus. Yes, I'm a Christian. You know, I belong to Christ, etc., etc., etc. But there is absolutely nothing about their life that indicates they have any real concern with following Jesus. John says, that doesn't count. That's not the real thing. You can say, I know Jesus, but if you don't even try to keep his commandments, you're just a liar. That's what John is saying. He's not trying to make Christians who are stumbling in their efforts to faithfully follow Jesus be discouraged. He's trying to warn against a false Christianity which uses merely the name of Jesus, but uh, as uh, Paul says elsewhere, they um, you know, prof- essentially profess godliness, but they deny its power. Right? There's, no, there's been no change in their life. That's not the real thing, John says. How do we recognize the real thing then? Uh, chapter 3, verse 14. He says, We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. If you look around in a room like this, and you're like, I love these people. These are my brothers and sisters in Christ. These are the people I want to be with. These are the people I go to when I need someone to pray for me, when I'm in trouble, when I need help, when I need encouragement, when I need counsel. When these people need help, these, I, I, I want to help them. I love them. I want to serve them. I want to encourage them. People who aren't Christians don't feel that way. That's what John's saying. If you feel that, that is a sign of life. You're no longer spiritually dead. You have been brought into spiritual life. You know that because you love the brothers, he says. Later in verse 24, 
of chapter 3. He says, Whoever keeps His commandments abides in God and God in Him. And by this we know that He abides in us by the Spirit whom He has given us. And John will say this again later, that the, the presence of the Holy Spirit in your life is evidence that you belong to Christ. Well, you might say, well, how do I know that I have the Holy Spirit in my life? Well, look at what Paul says about the fruit of the Spirit. The evidence of the Spirit's presence in your life is the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. Again, not do you have those in perfection or in the fullest measure possible. Not, you know, is your love fruit bigger than this other person's love fruit? Do you have it? You might not be as mature or as far down the road as somebody else. That's not the point. Do you have it? If you have it, that's evidence that the Spirit is in you. And if the Spirit is in you, that's evidence that you belong to God. John even tells us at the, toward the end of the book in 1 John 5, verse 13. This is the whole reason, or the main reason at least, why he wrote this letter. He says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. I'm telling you these things, in other words, because I want you to have assurance. I want you to know you have eternal life. I, know, I want you to know that no matter what happens to you here in this life, you are secure in your relationship with God forever. That's what he wants them to know. And then finally, he emphasizes loving one another. And this really ought to be the longest point, but uh, I'm going to have to go through it quickly. So I'll just highlight some of what he says about this. 1 John 3, 11, he says, This is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. And 1 John 3, 16, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we, we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. We know uh, love right, because of what Christ has done. He has shown us the most full, the most dramatic, the most um, amazing love that anybody can conceive or imagine. He has shown us in laying down His life. And if we're followers of Christ, then we ought to imitate the love that He's shown us as we love others. And that ought to not just be something we talk about, but something we practically do, John says in verse 17 and 18 of chapter 3. He says, If anyone has the world's goods... And sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him. How does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Now again here, don't let your mind go to like every conceivable person in the world who's in need anywhere at any time. You can't, we know about more people and more needs than we could ever possibly meet. Think about if someone in this room had a real desperate need. Would you be like, ah, they'll be fine. No, I know you. I know what you would do. I know you would trip over yourselves to serve and to help and to provide for whatever need arose. I've seen this church do it over and over. And it's not just one or two people. It's all of you. Right? So that's what John is talking about. Don't just say, oh yeah, I love you, but if you need anything, call somebody else. Right? If you have a real need, and we have a relationship, I know you, I'm going to help you. You're going to help me. Right? Because that's what Christ has done for us. That's what we're going to do for one another. 
The last passage I'll draw your attention to is in chapter 4, starting in verse 7. He says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. These four things that John emphasizes are not four separate things that we may choose to be interested in or not. Like, well, I'll take the love part, but I'm not worried about, you know, which Jesus people are talking about. It doesn't matter to me. They all hang together, and here's why. We have to know and confess the real Jesus, the Son of God who came in the flesh, if we are to embrace him and turn from sin. Right? You, you can't turn from sin to Jesus if you don't even know who the real Jesus is. And only if we embrace the real Jesus, the true Jesus, can we have genuine assurance of salvation. Because only the real Jesus can save and only the real Jesus can give the Spirit. And only if we have been saved by the real Jesus and have received the real Spirit and experienced the love of the real Jesus will we then be able to live a life characterized by Christ-like love. See, it all goes together. You can't say, well, I care about love, but I don't care about doctrine about Jesus. No, they go together. The doctrine fuels the love. The love reflects the doctrine. The love flows from Christ. The assurance comes from Christ. Salvation comes from Christ. All of it matters. And John wants us to embrace all of it so that we can know the truth. And again, the truth will set us free. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the gift of your Son and the gift of your Word that tells us about your Son and who He is and what He accomplished and why. Thank you for the great love that you have shown to us. Love far beyond anything we could have ever deserved or even hoped for. God, you have showered us with love, with grace, with mercy. God, help us to believe that you love us. God, help us to see the way you have changed us, shaped us, made us new. And help us show to one another, in just some small way, the great love that you have shown to us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Barbara's going to